Hey everybody, my name is Kyle and let me welcome you to Uplift. Uh, so thankful to see all of you. And as you know, this message is also streamed on Sunday morning for our Sunday morning Bible class called The Conversation. So if you're watching us online, so glad that you're here. Go ahead and log into the chat and say hi. We are in a series here in Uplift called Meet Jesus. That's the name of the series. And we are allowing ourselves to be reintroduced to Jesus over the next few weeks. I want to start tonight by giving you three names. Let me see if you can if you recognize them, Norm, Norma Kretel, Buzz Corey, and Jimmy Kalunga. Norma Kretel, don't, don't Google it. Don't Google it. You're going to steal my thunder. <laughs> hey, look, if you've never heard of these three people, you are in good company because most people, most Americans have never heard of these three people either. So don't, don't fret. But these three folks provided a service that ultimately changed the course of human history. Their accomplishments are shown in multiple images from the 20th century. Their achievements are staples in American history books. And their talents were so precise, so necessary, and so important. Get this, that they were forbidden to ride in a car together for fear that all three would be injured in the same car accident. I'm going to tell you what they did. They folded parachutes. They packed parachutes, specifically parachutes for NASA's Apollo program that sent astronauts to the moon. Let me show you. I got a picture of them. Those parachutes. You've seen images like this. Those three people folded those three parachutes. Now, let me give you a little bit of information. NASA's uh, Apollo space capsules needed quite a bit of ingenuity to make these parachutes. They, these parachutes had to slow a space capsule from 160 miles per hour to 22 miles an hour. It's actually going a lot faster when it enters the atmosphere. It's going like 20,000 miles per hour, but a successive chutes slow it down. And these final chutes are the ones that are, were the most important because even hitting the ocean at 160 miles per hour in these little capsules could be deadly. So these three folks had to, had to fold and pack these three chutes. So I want you to listen to the specifications. I just think this is fascinating. There were three main parachutes. They were each almost 84 feet across. Each parachute contained 7,200 square feet of fabric, which is enough to cover the square footage of three typical American homes. One square yard of this parachute material weighed just one ounce. And get this, if you're into trivia, each of these parachutes were sewn together with three and a half miles of thread and two million stitches. Each of those parachutes and all of the stitches were run through black Singer sewing machines. You remember those sewing machines? All stitched by hand. That wasn't the end. When they were done, each parachute was laid across a light table and inspected. Each of the two million seams or stitches per parachute were inspected by hand because if just one stitch was bad, it could be deadly. It could be deadly. After they passed the inspection, they were all folded and packed by hand. And those three folks, I think we've got their names, Norma Kretel, Buzz Corey, and Jimmy Kalunga, 
were the only people in the world authorized to pack these parachutes. And they packed the parachutes for each of the moon missions. They did it. They were the only people in the world. And though thousands of engineers and scientists and mechanics assembled what, what I think is easily humanity's crowning achievement of going to the moon and back, it was these three people, these three folks who were trusted and protected to bring the astronauts home safely and securely. These three people provided the utmost security for American heroes. But security today in 2022 doesn't quite mean the same thing. It's a risky word now because we've seen secure things fail, right? You've seen this. Just this week, I was reading in the news yesterday that a major hospital system in America released a statement that they experienced what was called, and this is their quote, an IT security incident, which means that the private medical records of thousands of patients was likely compromised. So what they thought was secure wasn't so secure after all. In fact, it's stuff like that that are making cybersecurities increase their, their budgets for protection. In fact, I don't know if you knew this. This is October, and this is Cybersecurity Awareness Month. I want to show you. You've probably seen this. If, if not, this is a big announcement for you. The Cybersecurity Awareness Month is a PR campaign designed to get you to think about your passwords and your internet browsers. You know why? Because they fail. So this is a little reminder to take care of your internet business. Here's another one, the National Security Agency, the NSA, you've heard of this, the most secure agency in the world isn't as secure as they'd hoped. Just this summer, a 30-year-old employee of the National Security Agency who was not even working there one month was arrested for stealing and trying to sell classified information about uh, the American government. Can you, get, can you imagine? He, he, was, he worked there three weeks. He was on staff less than a month and was able to steal and sell critical secrets. So, so here's, the, here's the thing. What we thought was secure, as secure as the parachutes on the Apollo space capsules, not so secure. It's not so secure. And, and by default, through breaches and Emails to change passwords. You ever received those? You, your, your account might have been hacked. You might need to change your password. We've actually been taught to have a flexible definition of security. In fact, I'm just going to kind of be honest. We've been taught to doubt what we thought was secure, right? Strong passwords, they work, right? Well, maybe they don't. Maybe they don't. Home security systems work, right? Well, what about that Amazon package that was stolen from your front porch? right? You've heard this. Two-factor security works. Well, maybe not all the time when your data is stolen. These things go on and on and on. But we still think about security. Americans spend $20 billion a year to make ourselves safe. We like to be safe. We like to be safe. In fact, safety and security, those are two of our basic needs. I don't know if you ever heard of this guy. His name is Abraham Maslow. He's a prominent psychologist in the 20th century. He presented a theory 
for human motivation based upon our needs. And that theory is actually still used. I don't know if you've heard of this. It's called Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. I've got an image for you. The big idea of his theory is that we inherently meet all humans. We inherently meet a universal set of needs before we move on to the next needs that we might have. And in this, this pyramid here, even though it's got five levels, Maslow divided his hierarchy into two major groups. The bottom two groups are what he called deficiency needs. And then the top three levels are what he called growth needs. So let me kind of explain this. Deficiency needs, those two at the bottom, are what we have to have. They have to be satisfied. And without them, we would be deficient. They are the have-to-haves in our lives. We'll talk about them in just a second. The top three, the growth needs, these are additions. They're not required to live, but they help us grow into emotionally healthy people. So take a look at the bottom of this pyramid at the most basic of what he called our deficiency needs. And of course, you know this, you don't need a pyramid to show you this. Our most basic need is the need to survive. Breathing and water and food. That's our most basic need. That's the most basic human need that cuts across all cultures in the world. Once we establish survival, we move up the pyramid to the next one, which is, of course, you see it, safety and security. The want for control and protection in our life is extreme. We want financial security. We want good health. We want a, a house that can become our personal fortress. Maslow believed that we can't mature as humans until we meet these two of our most basic needs. The need for safety is a major motivation for our own personal success. And by the way, this hierarchy isn't just for people. Businesses have adopted this hierarchy. Organizations and businesses have are used, used the same thing. And analysts and sociologists have kind of discovered something. And here's, it's probably something you've already thought of. So if, if safety is one of our basic needs, then how does risk come into play in this in this pyramid, where does, where does risk belong? Is risk good, is it bad? Well, analysts and sociologists have, have discovered that this theory actually absorbs risk. In other words, we can only do so much to minimize risk and threats, but here's what this theory presents, and it's true, you know this, that we innately deal with threats before we exploit opportunities. We take care of the danger zones before we move on to the things we want to do. And that's how serious we are about security. That's how serious we are about our security. And here's why. The world's scary. It's a dangerous place. In our life, there's, we don't really have parachute folders, right? We don't have any safety nets. So when our safety isn't met, you know what happens we find ourselves in cognitive dissonance, right? We find ourselves with competing ideals. Our safety's in jeopardy. We thought we were safe, but now it's in jeopardy. Our security isn't secure. Doubt creeps and spreads and it overwhelms. And we just find ourselves really, really, really confused. So it's right here that I want to share with you these precious words of Jesus as we're meeting him again here, maybe even for the first time. Our text is from John chapter 6. We're going to read from verse 35 through verse 40. I've included it on your outline too. I want you to take it with you. 
Jesus said to them, verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you've seen me, and yet you don't believe. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I, Jesus said, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Let me give you some context here. Jesus makes seven statements in the Gospel of John that are predicated by the two words, I am. John crafted his gospel this way to make you think of God introducing himself at the burning bush when Jesus spoke, where God identified himself as I am. Right here, John chapter 6, verse 35, it's the first of these I am statements, and it's a big one because it's a little controversial, a little controversial, because who considers themselves to be God? Who does this? You've heard of this. You've heard of a couple of writers, Watchman Nee and C.S. Lewis. They both wrote about this question. That, that what, is, what is Jesus exactly? He's either a lunatic or a liar or a Lord or our Lord. You probably heard this. I want to read you how Watchman Nee presented this question. This is a quote from his book. If you, if, you, if you do not believe that Jesus is God, he wrote, you have to consider him a madman. If you cannot take him for either of the two, either God or a madman, if you can't stomach either of those, then Watchman Nee wrote, you have to take him for a liar. And then he, he finished this with this really infamous quote, there's no need for us to prove if Jesus of Nazareth is God or not. All we have to do is find out if he is a lunatic or a liar. And if he's neither of those, he must be the son of God. This I am statement's pretty controversial. Listen, I can't force you to believe Jesus's words here, but I can say unequivocally that history itself proves that Jesus is Lord well beyond Jesus's own claims. Look, I trust, we trust, this church trusts the, sincere, the sincerity and the delivery of Scripture. And we also trust the belief in Jesus that other people had. The New Testament is full of people who believed Jesus to be God, the Messiah, crucified and resurrected. I want to read you a quote here from a, an author. His name is Robin Lane Fox. And he wrote a book called Pagans and Christians. You need to write this one down if you're a reader. This is a good one. Let me give you a little bit about Robin Lane Fox. He's an English historian. He's currently a fellow at New College, Oxford, and the University of Oxford. He's at a University of Oxford reader in ancient history. Now, this book, Pagans and Christians, 
details historically the rise of Christianity in the Roman Empire and the downfall of pagan cults at the same time. Now, I'm going to read you a quote here about what he wrote about the resurrection of Jesus. Huge book, 800 words or so, 800 pages or so. And what he wrote specifically in reference to other religions that made claims of epiphanies and visions of their pagan gods. So what he's doing here is he's comparing the resurrection of Jesus to the visions of gods from other cults. I've got it on the screen. I'm going to read it to you. Follow along with me. Some of the stories Fox wrote, some of the stories of visions of the resurrected Jesus do seem to have developed as defensive legends. Now, hang on. We're going to explain that in a minute. Taking forms which countered obvious objections. When the women returned from the tomb, said Matthew, they saw Jesus and they came up and they took hold of his feet. At other times, Jesus asked them to feel him or to poke fingers into his wounds. They ate salt with him. That's an old King James Version reference. And they watched while he ate or cooked their breakfast over a campfire. Now look at this last sentence. Unbelievable. These stories were very explicit and had no pagan counterpart. Now let me explain to you what he's saying here. It's pretty important and it's quite impressive. This is what he's saying. In other words, even if you take the stories of Jesus's resurrection as just legends, not even real, if you just take them as legends for early believers who are trying to defend themselves, what he concludes is that no one can dispute one central fact that no other religion or pagan cult in the Roman Empire had anything close to a physically resurrected God. None of them did. Not one. They had dreams and visions, but none of them. Of all those religions in the Roman Empire, Christianity stands alone as the only one who said that this God resurrected in bodily form. It's pretty impressive. I'm not, I'm not going to try to persuade you to believe the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. That's not the point. I do believe that. I do believe that. Scripture attests to it, and even historians have to admit there isn't a better explanation. But here's what I'm going to do for the next few moments. I'm going to show you who Jesus is by how he talked about himself. That's what I'm going to do. So here's what we learn about Jesus in this passage in the Gospel of John. There are three things. The first thing we learn is this, that Jesus satisfies. He satisfies. Let's read verses 35 and 36 again. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But, I've, but I said to you that you've seen me, and yet you don't believe. What's interesting about these two verses is that Jesus just doesn't present himself as bread. He presents himself as enough. Enough. God, through the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, in these two chapters, you might want to write these down, in chapter 49 and chapter 55, actually promised a day to come where hunger and thirst would disappear. And he wasn't promising a day where physical hunger and physical thirst would be over. He was using this, and even Jesus used it here in John chapter 6, as a metaphor 
to describe the sufficiency of Jesus. But the point is made clear here. Look at this. Jesus satisfies those who both come to him and who believe in him. If not for our approach to Jesus and our belief in Jesus, we would find constant hunger and thirst, constant dissatisfaction. We'll never be satisfied. We'll seek satisfaction in anything else. We, we become infatuated with relational drama. We become news junkies or political operatives. We obsess over our portfolio. The list goes on and on and on and on. In fact, it's actually worth a personal inventory to ask what it is that's become your obsession. What makes your heart race? What gets you fired up? Because that obsession is that which you've yet to see is failing at satisfying. Jesus isn't saying that every physical need is going to be met here. It's not what he's saying. He's saying that the redemption from sin he offers is the single greatest and most satisfying gift in your life. Jesus satisfies. Never doubt this. Here's the second thing. Jesus secures. He secures. Look at verse, verses 37 and 38, which actually are two of my more favorite verses in this entire gospel. All, Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Two things to notice here about Jesus in these two verses. Number one, this is, this is, this is a big one. Jesus takes no credit, no credit for anyone who comes to him, not one. In fact, this is his defense against accusations of charisma and power, that he's attracting people. He's saying, no, it's not me. Those who come to a saving faith in Jesus do so because God brought them to Jesus. That's what he's saying here. It's a pretty, pretty powerful passage. Here's the second thing we learn about Jesus here. We can't trust our ability to believe in Jesus. Now listen, let me say that again. We can't trust our own ability to choose Jesus. We can't do it. Because if given the choice, we don't choose Jesus. We don't. We choose us. Now, hang on. Let me tell you how I know this. I know this because of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve. Who in a perfect life, with every need met, without sorrow or care or trouble or drama, they chose themselves over God in their disobedience. Listen, don't get worked up over this. This is actually really good news. Jesus secures you as his gift from the Father, not because you're worth it, but because God is. It's powerful. You are a gift of God to Jesus. If you come to Jesus and you believe in Jesus, you're a gift of God to Jesus. And you are secure in that. You're secure in that. Don't ever doubt this. Here's the third thing we learn about Jesus. Jesus saves. He saves. 
Let's read this again, verses 39 and 40, the final two verses in our passage. Jesus said, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. Jesus is talking about the end here. He's talking about the last day. Fun fact here, this expression, the last day, it's only found here in the Gospel of John in the New Testament. Nowhere else in the New Testament is that phrase found except in this Gospel. Because John was eager to communicate life beyond the end of time where all danger disappears. And this phrase too, this phrase eternal life, Let's explain this for a minute, right? This is not a continuation of your life now. It's not a continuation of our life with all of its stuff and its trappings, its schedules and exhaustion and sickness and disease. I don't want this life forever. I don't think you do either. We don't experience this life forever. We experience something else. We are resurrected to a life of complete satisfaction for infinity, a life of happiness beyond what we've ever imagined. A life of, oh my goodness, a life of relief, right? My daughters have invariably asked me about this when they were much, much younger. And I'm not telling you a story about my daughters, by the way. This is really a story about how I had to explain this to young minds, right? And they all all four would ask me this question. What What does this mean? So I'm gonna tell you, the best way I could explain this to little girls, little young minds is this. I would ask them, and they all did it when they were little. They may not even remember anymore. I would ask them to imagine the happiest moment in their life. Just just think about that, whatever that was. Imagine the feelings and the emotions of that, the expectations and the experiences. And then I would say this, imagine that never ending. Oh my goodness, that is eternal life, times infinity. Jesus saves us from this life for that life. And again, he, he doesn't not be, he, he doesn't do this because we're worth it. He does it because of Jesus's faithfulness. He does it because he's obedient to the Father's will. His act of saving us is his obedience And his failure to do that would be to his everlasting shame. You are safe. And listen, whatever happens, whatever threats arise, Jesus will be obedient. This is a life of relief and a life of salvation. Don't ever, ever doubt this.